And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar what the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The Sadducees then came to him and s- who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife. When he died, he left no offspring. Then the second took her and also died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. For as the dead being raised, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love the Lord, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is the one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Thank you, Sam. That was a long passage to read. You did a great job with that. A long passage. Normally when we when a study of this passage is done, it's broken up into maybe four different sermons, because there are quite a number of events that are happening here. Yet, I noticed 
a pattern here that intrigued me. I, I saw this thread and I started pulling on it. And, oh, this all ties together, doesn't it? What is that thread? The book of Mark, as, as we've watched this develop, as we're working through this study of the book of Mark, and Lord willing, we'll be wrapping up along about Easter, into March, and so forth. But this book of Mark really is a training manual for how Jesus trained his disciples to live on the faith after he was gone to glory. And it's a pattern for us to follow as well in knowing how to be followers and to help others follow Jesus Christ as well. So I'm watching this pattern develop here, and I'm looking for this thread. I've been in settings where I really do feel intimidated. Ever been in one of those settings where you're just, uh, and, and I lock up and I freeze up, and I, and I get this vibe from the people that are there that they're wanting to trap me in an argument. Ever been in one of those situations where, oh, what do I do with this? We're intimidated. But here in Mark chapter 12, verse 13, we need to see that there's a hostile setting here that they're in. It's, it's, they're, they're there to trap him in his talk. That, that word trap, um, it's an interesting word. It's a hopox legomena, which means it's only used one time in the Bible. And this word is, is the idea of attempting to trap with a violent argument. Aha, we've got you. They wanted to destroy Jesus. Now, my question is, why is this passage and the ones to follow, why are these here in the Scriptures, here in, as we understand it in Mark chapter 12? And I noticed a series of questions. That was the thread I started pulling. A series of questions that were asked of Jesus, and then finally, some questions that Jesus asked of them. Questions. Even in this setting, Jesus is discipling his disciples. Here, they're just getting, it's in the, the final week of his, his time here on earth, and he's getting ready to go to the cross, and he's still teaching them by his example. That's the best teaching style, is by pattern, by example. And watch what he teaches them. He teaches them to be prepared to use questions in their testimony for the Lord. And, and we need to be prepared as followers of Jesus Christ. We need to be prepared to, to buy up the opportunities, to be ready to give a reason of the hope that lies within us. And we can use questions in our testimony for Christ. So our text here is, is Mark chapter 12, as you've had read, verses 13 through 37, a longer passage. But what we want to do is, as believers, be prepared to use questions for the gospel's sake. Lord, would you take this passage as we open these scriptures? Lord, would you take charge? And may we see what you want us to do in our lives for you because of what you've done for us. May the gospel be overpowering. May we be convinced of who you are, what your eternal purpose is, and what you've done for us to make that possible. Your eternal purpose is the redemption of all who were to turn to you in faith believing. And I would ask, Lord, that your gospel would be known today 
and in us and through us in the days ahead throughout our community. May we be a shining light. May we be salty. May we encourage many to look to Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So be prepared to handle hostile questions. That's what we see this passage open up here in the first, in the first account. And there was a motive here, as we addressed, was to trap him, to, to catch him in an argument. And they do so by formulating two trick questions. Did you see those? The first trick question. The Pharisees and the Herodians ask if it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. Huh. You want to start an argument. <laughs> That's the way to do it. Talk politics or talk about taxes. Nobody likes taxes. And that really is their intent here, to, to create an angst within this crowd that was listening to, to create an argument. And this really is very interesting. These Pharisees were joining up with the Herodians. Herodians. Pharisees and Herodians on the same team? That's impossible. You see this here in verses 13 and 14. Uh, they're, they're together. They're working together in verse, verse 13. The Pharisees and some of the Herodians, they're doing this. They're trying to trap Jesus. Again, incredibly interesting if you know their culture. The Pharisees hated the Herodians with a passion. These Herodians were Jews who supported Herod and the Herodian rule. Uh, the Herodian family were simply puppet kings of the oppressive Romans, and they just hated that. And these Herodians were the enemies of the Pharisees in their culture. Yet here, they're conspiring because there's a greater hatred they have. They hate Jesus, and they wanted him destroyed. Taxes were a necessary reality. They still are. Helps run society, pay roads, provide water, plumbing, all the various things that we need, and security. They had soldiers to ensure safety. However, in this setting, the Jews had to pay for the very soldiers who were oppressing them. Hmm. Hmm. That was so offensive to these Jews. Every Jew hated this. And many even refused to pay their taxes. So this was a debate that was going on. So obviously their purpose here is to create a question that would divide the crowd to create an uproar. And here Jesus gives a great, well, a good sense answer. Jesus asked for a denarius. What's a denarius? Well, a denarius is a simple coin. It's, it's equivalent to about one day's wage, whatever you would make in a day. That's the amount that that might be, maybe Maybe $150 or so, whatever, I don't know. And, and on that denarius is a picture of Caesar, right? Uh, <clears throat> Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, and you see here on this coin, Augustus. That term Augustus should have only been used by God because it means the August one or the one who deserves our worship. And here it's being used of a man. And anybody that knows their Old Testament, the Scriptures, knows that that's, that's idolatry. And that's arrogance. 
And the command in Exodus is to make no graven image. And so the Jews had to use this coinage with this image, and it was offensive, extra, extra offensive. Well, Jesus said, with holding this coin, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, right? This is Caesar's coin. Pay your tax to Caesar. Yet there's a higher authority Pay to God what is God's. And there are two lessons here for us I think are obvious. God wants us to pay our taxes. Read Romans 13. addresses that very clearly. Honor them. And we, we, that's part of our testimony. And number two, above all of that, give to God what is God's. He has the right of our worship and our loyalty and our love. We, we obey God rather than men. And we're submissive and we give allegiance to God and we give Him our lives. We live for the Lord. It's not about you. It's all about Jesus Christ, our Lord and our God. Amen? So then there's a second trick question that comes His way. And here's a different group of people that are addressed. And they're bringing up this idea of remarriage and and the resurrection and this scenario, this made-up scenario. In Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27, we see this section, and you see it's addressing the Sadducees came to him. They, they, these are the ones who did not believe that there was anything after life. There was no resurrection. The Sadducees were sad, you see, because there was nothing to look forward to. The word Sadducee, uh, Sadak, was, uh, was the idea of ones who were making themselves righteous or to be righteous. And they accepted only, this is very significant, they accepted only Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books, the Pentateuch of the, what we know as the Old Testament. That was, all, that was all that they would receive as their authority because that was the law. They didn't believe in the resurrection, so life was all about now and how you lived and got the most out of it now. It was all about wealth building and using politics to make yourself rich. Hmm, does that ever happen? Well, here, the, the Sadducees were very influential with, with the high priest. It was the high priest's crowd, and, and they were very much part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling class that determined where the monies went. In fact, they were the most offended the mo- they were so angry that Jesus had turned over the tables in the temple just prior to this. So the Sadducees, in the same spirit of trickery, they, they went to Jesus to inquire about this resurrection idea, which they didn't believe in. They're being hypocritical about it. Again, it's helpful to know the context. In verses 20 and 23, they threw out this trick question referencing Deuteronomy 25, that Moses had addressed, all right? Moses said this regarding uh, how you cared for the widows. Remember Ruth and Boaz in the book of Ruth? I mean, they were addressing this same passage. Uh, it was there to help and care for the widows. So according to the law, if there was a widow, her husband's brother was to marry her, to take care of her and include her in the family and his lineage. So their scenario here is, okay, so it happens once, and he dies, no children. Happens again, the brother marries her, and he dies, and no children. 
By the time the third guy gets into the picture, he should be thinking, this is dangerous. But it happened seven times. And then their question is, okay, so in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be? Aha, just a trick question. See how ridiculous this is? And Christ's response is to use their own authority. The scriptures. Use the scriptures well. By the way, are we going to be married in heaven? Are you going to be married to your mate in heaven? That's, that's, that's a, that's a, it's complicated. I know it'll be better. It'll be better than you can ever imagine. And I can imagine my wife thinking, I've been married to him for 40 years here. It's got to be better than that. <laughs> Heaven's got to be better than that. Don't tell her I talked about this. All right, please. She's in the nursery today. I'm so thankful for that. But, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but would, how is this marriage thing going to work in heaven? Well, Jesus says it's going to be so much better. Even yeah, Consider what the angels understand. So much better than you can even imagine. And Christ's response here is their source of authority he uses to help them understand his point. Again, they believe in the first five books of the, the scriptures. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Exodus. So in verses 24 through 27, there's a rebuke here. You neither know the scriptures or the power of God. The scriptures relate very clearly, and the power of God, God can do this. There is erection, resurrection, excuse me, and it's concerning these that were dead, they're alive again. Have you not read Exodus? And Jesus shows that there will be a resurrection by quoting the burning bush passage, Exodus chapter 3. And he says, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am. God was not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Abraham is still alive. God is talking about Abraham still being alive. Isaac is still alive. God is, I am, is talking about he's their God. Jacob is still alive. So there is more to life than just this life. Remember this. You're going to live somewhere forever. And it's so important to know that you have eternal life in Jesus Christ. And the God of the living will not let death end our existence. So there's more to the story. And I love this. He says to them, you are wrong. Not just wrong. You are quite wrong. <laughs> you have no clue. I kind of wonder what these rulers, these powerful people in their politics and the rich people, I wonder what their response was to him saying to them point blank, you're wrong. That's a courageous thing, isn't it? Christian, be courageous. And even if you have to address hostile questions, be ready and know that God can give you the words. He gives you the Holy Spirit to give you the words to know exactly what to say at just the right moment. 
He will help you with that. May I suggest and recommend a book that I think is a good tool for us in our day to be able to, to be ready for those times when the Holy Spirit can ready us for these needful conversations. It's a book called Tactics by Gregory Cole. Now, I like this book because of the way it's laid out and how it addresses these questions. I'm not in full agreement with Gregory Cole in that he would, he would promote an old earth creation idea where it didn't happen in six days. And it's interesting, as I'm reading through his book, I'm thinking, you know, the very things that you're teaching in the book, you need to be addressing. I would love to have asked these questions of you regarding your position about an old earth rather than a literal creation as it's explained in Genesis 1 and 2. That said, in tactics, he talks about using the Columbo tactic, which is simply, remember Columbo, those of you that remember the name, you know you're old because you remember that name. Columbo was a, was a, a series with a detective who was all disheveled and, and had no, no style about him. And uh, he'd walk in on the scene, just kind of bumble around. And then he would start asking questions and then a follow-up question. And then, oh, just one more thing as he's walking out. Uh, one more question comes to mind. The kind of questions that you would ask would be, so what do you mean by that? And the second question would be, how did you come to that conclusion? So if a person has an argumentative statement about the Bible or about what you believe, you can say, so what do you mean? Help me understand. What do you mean by that? And then you follow that up with, so how did you come to that conclusion? And before you know it, you have them trying to explain something that they're not really all that comfortable with or it creates more conversation for you to talk through. And that leads to another tactic. There are a number of them in this book, but another one, another one I really appreciate is what, what we would, he would call taking the roof off. <laughs> um, uh, it's, it's exposing what's, what's underneath, the absurdity of the idea, where the further you go with describing their thought, the more absurd it is. By asking questions and you're understanding their principles and their assertions, you were able to identify the inconsistencies. So, for instance, maybe somebody says, there, there's a, there's a, if, if a person's made that way, they're made that way, it, it must be the way they're supposed to be. That's just morally right, isn't it? Well, then you follow that up with, dig it a little bit deeper. So, you're saying if a person is naturally this way, that they should be able to live that way, correct? Well, what about this? What about... Uh, what an abu- about an abuser? Or what about somebody who's, who's uh, a murderer? And they just say, that's just the way I am. That's the way I'm, I'm prone to be. That's the way, that's what, is it okay? Um, well, maybe not. So therefore, just because an impulse is natural for someone doesn't mean it's morally acceptable. So who determines that morality? Now we're on to something. Is it up to me to determine morality, or is it up to God? Is there an authority that has that? So then you have another conversation. You've used the Columbo tactic, and you've taken the lid off, and you're having a great conversation using good questions. Jesus does this for us here in these two scenarios. Use questions. Don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated. 
Yes, there'll be hostile situations where somebody might want to be a bit argumentative with you and to catch you, to trap you to, by an argument. Ask good questions and respond with good sense. Jesus does that. Number two, be prepared to respond to the searching questions. Not all questions. Uh, by the way, the harsh questions, they're probably somebody is trying to figure something out and they just want to argue to be able to figure it out. So be understanding of that. Every story has a story behind their story, right? But sometimes there are searching questions that come your way. People that really are searching for the answers because they're under conviction. So be understanding. Be gracious and understanding. So here in the scriptures, one of the scribes, verse 28, one of the scribes asked him, so what's the most important? Oh, we, we, this phrase this way. What is the greatest commandment, right? What is the priority, the one that we should put up first and in front? Why is he asking this question? Well, he's been around these people that are so righteous that they're keeping all these rules, and he recognizes there's still something missing. I don't want to miss eternity. He realizes within his soul that he's going to live somewhere forever. And you will. You will live somewhere forever. So will I. And there are only two, two choices, either in heaven with God or away from God in a place the Bible describes as hell, a burning lake of fire. Now, I don't want to miss heaven. So he's wanting to be able to know that he can get to heaven by Keeping the rules. So he's saying, so which one should I emphasize the most? Well, Jesus answered wisely. And he summarized all of the commandments with two commandments. In verses 30 and 31, he says, Love the Lord your God, Yahweh, the one that's described in the Old Testament as the I am, the one that is everything you'll ever need. Love God. And then also love your neighbor. The way you love God helps you know how to love your neighbor. So Jesus, again, is taking a compilation of three scriptures, Deuteronomy, Numbers, and Deuteronomy 6, and, and also chapter 11, and also Numbers chapter 15. Now, the rabbis had like 600, 613 commandments that they were always trying to focus on and keep up with, right? But Jesus simplified it with, this is, the, this is what's most important, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with, all your, with everything you have, and love your neighbor. And the scribe responds in verse 32. You're right, teacher. You truly said that, that he is one and there is no other beside him, referring to the Shema. So we better get right about what it is about God that's true. And God is to be loved. And then Jesus says to him in verse 34, are you with me? You see this? You're not far from the kingdom. Close, but no cigar. This isn't horseshoes. Why did he miss the kingdom of God? He knows that he's not loving God with everything. He knows he has not always loved his neighbor. Every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. 
every one of us has missed it. So the whole point of the Bible is God knows that. And God sends his son, Jesus, to offer us the gift of his righteousness through his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. And the fact that he, rising from the grave, conquers our sin and our failure to keep the law. So that's the point of the gospel. In fact, we read in Galatians chapter 5, where it addresses this same passage, loving God and loving your neighbor, and then it says, I've given you the Holy Spirit. You can walk in the Spirit to be able to love like that. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? What's the first description of this? Love. So God does enable what we cannot do on our own. And that's the joy of a local church, a Christian body of believers who are walking in the Spirit. They're able to love like that. And they're able to have a testimony of love like that in their community. May that be. If it's not there, we're no different than the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees. No one dared ask him a question after that. So then Jesus starts talking with his question. We have those that were asking Jesus questions, and he was prepared. Those that were hostile, so those that were searching. Number three, be prepared to share enlightening questions that reveal the Messiah, God's plan, the whole point of life. Be a salty Christian. Use instructive questions to open the way to the understanding of the gospel. When you see the big picture of the Bible and how it all fits, you go, oh, so that's what's going on. That's what life is all about, to understand the gospel. May I share with you another resource that I've come across in the last while? It's a a book called Workplace Grace by Bill Peel and Walter Larimore. And... uh, In this book, he's talking about how to live out your faith and share the gospel where you work. Uh, By the way, if you'd like to have this resource, just text me and I can send you a link and you can get a hold of that. But in in this, I think about halfway through the book, there's a chapter on creating curiosity. And he talks about planting a flag. A flag is put there to be able to identify this. there's something important here. This is significant. This is meaningful. And you just plant the flag. And he calls it a flag of faith. Where you bring God into the conversation where the person kind of goes, huh, oh, yeah. And then they want to ask another question, and they'll come back to more. You plant the flag of faith. If somebody is having to leave work because they have to, They'll take their child to the emergency room. You say, hey, I'm praying for you. I know that God will be a help. You just planted a flag. Or if somebody is talking about how terrible our world is and how how awful it is, you say, you're right, there's got to be something better about this. I'm so glad God gives me an answer about what the future holds. You just planted a flag. Or, man, I just don't know what to do about the mess we're in. There's There's so much angst in our home. It's just falling apart. And, yeah. We really do need God's help about that. Isn't it good to know that God is able to take things that are broken and put it back together again? 
He redeems. Oh, you planted a flag. Jesus does that here with this question that he asks. Sometimes you can ask questions that are planting a flag of faith. Verse 34 starts with, verse 35, excuse me, starts with the word and. And, as Jesus taught in the temple. So he's continuing this progression of questioning going on. But now it's his turn to ask the question. How can the scribes say that the Christ, they all believed in the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one. How can this anointed be the son of David? How can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, David believed that the Holy Spirit told him these things. Jesus believed in Holy Spirit inspiration of the Scriptures. This is a significant verse. And he declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he a son? What's going on here? David in the Holy Spirit said, Yahweh said to my Adonai. We know that Yahweh is the I am in the third person. He is. And then here in Psalm, he's quoting Psalm 110. He's saying, my Adonai. And by the way, Psalm 110 is quoted the most of anywhere in the New Testament quotations of the Old Testament. It's this passage, Psalm 110. It's very significant. And he says, the Lord Yahweh says to someone else, Adonai. And Adonai means absolute sovereign, the Lord, the one who is the ruler and we all bow to, the Adonai. So Jehovah says, Adonai. Now, it's not just any Adonai, it's David's Adonai, because he says, it's my Adonai. Who is David's Adonai? Who is this sovereign over the king of Israel? God alone would be that. How, how do you get both of those things to happen? So what is the Holy Spirit saying? David says that Jehovah says that Adonai, David's physical son, will sit at his right hand. He is more than a physical descendant of David. He is God in the flesh. How does that happen? That's the whole point of the gospel story. It's something that the power of God can do that's beyond our comprehension. It's a mystery that God reveals and he unfolded and did his plan exactly as he said. Because he told us in Isaiah 9, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, right? This virgin would conceive and bear a son, and they would call him Emmanuel, God with us. So Jesus is just putting out there a flag. Think on this. How can this be? If this is what's in the Scriptures, how can David's Adonai be his son? How does this all work? Psalm 2, verse 7, I will tell you the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This son that David calls his son, God calls his son. 
How does that work? And by creating this question, using this scripture, Jesus is able to plant a flag to draw them to faith. Consider it and dig in deeper. In fact, I kind of wonder how many people were here listening to this conversation here just a couple of days before Jesus went to the cross. And then they see it unfold, and then they know their scriptures, and they're thinking on these things. And they go, oh, so that's what's going on. That's the gospel. Jesus, the Messiah, is God in the flesh who died for my sins, but he rose again, and he conquered the grave. And that's why I know I have eternal life, because I've trusted in him alone. There is no other salvation in it any other given among men whereby we are able to be saved. So the New Testament answers that question that Jesus posed with what Jesus Christ accomplished and how all of the letters explain this beautiful gospel message. Can't help but wondering how many people were there listening to Jesus address this question and this thought went through their mind and they searched the scriptures and they saw how it was so And a few days later or months later, they were part of the early church. In fact, if you read Acts, there are a number of these things happening that exactly as Jesus described it, it's what happens again. In fact, there were times that the disciples handled harsh questions, right? Hostile questions. Just read the first couple of chapters in Acts. There were some that were were coming questioning. They're searching. Remember the Ethiopian on his way back, and God sent sent to him Philip to answer his questions. And then you can share those enlightening questions like Paul did in Mars Hill. Making people think, plant that flag. You may not be able to share the whole gospel, but you can share something that will make them think about the gospel. By the way, take some tracks along with you. Take the invitation cards along. Just plant a flag. Just be the one that then they see a series of flags that point them to this significant truth of Jesus Christ. And they can go away. Very, the last very, very last word of verse 37, they can hear him gladly. There's something special here in what Jesus did. In responding to these questions, and in addressing this question. So see your life as an opportunity to speak up for Jesus. Don't be intimidated. Be smart. Use your gifts. And always be looking for that one by when they ask a question, they reveal their searching for Jesus and spend a little bit extra time showing them the love of God and how Jesus gives that. And keep on pointing them to Jesus. Just think how God's going to use you for his kingdom. Lord, would you take these words, remind us that you have every word spoken on purpose in the scriptures for our edification. May we be wise applying your truth in understanding the love of God and how that works out within a body of believers and as a testimony to our community. Help us to know your scriptures are right and true and it all fits together. There's evidence. 
There's wisdom with truth applied. Jesus, use our church in this way as you used your disciples. And may we be a testimony of your glory and grace and the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name.